All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome in. Thanks for joining us for a backpatting day. Yeah, reach around, pat yourself on the back. You've made it all the way to the weekend because it's Friday. Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and society. I also serve as Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and I'm currently the interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville. Services are at 1030 every Sunday morning, so if you don't have a church home, uh, come on over. It's easy to get there if you're living in the Greer, Greenville, Spartanburg area. All right, um, let's start out with party balloons floating over the United States. You know, this is um, a pretty interesting stuff to have a Chinese surveillance balloon, high altitude, floating around, I mean, floating over the United States, looking down on our missile silos in Montana. I mean, it's not like this thing's flying over the desert or flying over a an ice cream store or something like that i mean it's not it's not a ben and jerry's uh thing this is this it's flying over montana where our missile silos are flying over air force bases and i suppose just collecting information right and left um but now the opening sentence in this story from National Review about this, written by Jimmy Quinn, tells you everything that you need to know and be concerned about here. Okay? I, I, I have no doubt that the Chinese have high-altitude high spy balloons. Uh, I have no doubt that occasionally uh, they send them over the United States to try to collect information. I have no doubt we have high-altitude spy balloons, and we probably have them floating around over, you know, who knows what. Of course, considering the state of the United States military, they may be over uh, drag queen shows and, and stuff like that trying to get close-up pictures, but hopefully not. Hopefully they're collecting evidence about the enemy. But this is the, the opening. I want you to listen to the opening sentence and see what stands out to you. Okay. A Chinese spy balloon was spotted over the U.S. by civilians on an airplane this week that the Defense Department revealed today, with President Biden initially ordering that it be shot down, according to news reports. You know, if, if our, let's say, defense net that's kind of protects the United States from stuff coming in here like missiles, uh, nuclear-armed aircraft. I mean, if, if our detecting devices have been reduced to passengers on a commercial airline who look out the window and go, look, there's a Chinese spy balloon, then we've got big problems. I mean, the, the gist of this story, what I'm getting from all the stories that I've read about this is that essentially the government was informed about this balloon when people started seeing it and reporting it. Why did we not pick it up? How, why is it that we didn't know that this thing was up there looking at us? You know, I'm, for some reason I've got this reel playing in my head of Hidden Figures, the movie. You know, it, it starts out with 
um, the three African-American women that become prominent at NASA, they're driving to work and their car breaks down. And they're, of course, in northern Virginia. And a police officer pulls up behind them, which makes them nervous because they're African-American women in 1961. And... This police officer comes out, and as he finds out these ladies work at NASA, he immediately looks up and says, you know, they're up there. They're watching us. They're looking down on us right now. Them, them, them commies are, are, are watching us. <laughs> I just couldn't stop thinking about that scene when people are on an airplane, you know, looking out the window and going, look, the commies, they're watching us. They're, they're looking at us right now. Here's the rest of the story. The U.S. has detected and is tracking a high-altitude surveillance balloon. Yeah, the U.S. has detected, thanks to some passengers on an airliner, uh, that is over the continental U.S. right now. Brigadier General Pat Ryder, the Pentagon spokesman, said today, the Wall Street Journal reported. Ryder added, once the balloon was detected, the U.S. government acted immediately to protect against the collection of sensitive information. How? What, did they did they go wrap our missiles in tin foil or did everybody put on their tin foil hats over at the Pentagon? What I'd like to a little bit more explanation about what it means that they immediately began to protect us from the collection of sensitive information. I, you know, may, maybe they're jamming the signal somehow. They they don't say. According to the Journal, President Biden had initially ordered that the reconnaissance device be shot down but was rebuffed by the pentagon which worried that such a move could cause civilian casualties the balloon first was spotted by passengers on board a civilian aircraft the paper also reported see here at the beginning you might say oh this is just how we found out about it that the passenger on a civilian aircraft saw it and that's how it got into the media no 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 the government the first they knew about it came from the passenger the balloon first was spotted by passengers. A senior defense official in comments reported by NBC downplayed the balloon's intelligence value because the Chinese government has other surveillance options. <laughs> oh, sure, they do. They just launch these balloons for kicks and giggles. I mean, they, they just send it over to the United States because they could do it a different way, but they just like to have balloons. They, they were having a big party. Uh, Xi Jinping was celebrating his granddaughter's 10th birthday and one of the balloons got loose from the party and it just happened to fly over Alaska, Canada and over Montana where our missile silos are. I mean that because but because this this is nothing the the Chinese have better surveillance models. That doesn't give me a lot of comfort. I mean does that give you a lot of comfort? When they when they write a story that says, well, we you know we're not too worried about it because we know the Chinese can do better than this. I'm a little concerned about what they're doing, not the fact of what they might do or that they're also doing, unless you want to tell me what that might be. Um, the official also said the U.S. could have taken it down during a period in which it flew over Montana and that it entered the U.S. over Alaska and then flew over Canada. This person said that the U.S. has confidently attributed the balloon, which is still over the U.S., to China and that Washington has raised the issue with Chinese officials through multiple channels. And, of course, China has said they're going to look into it. They're going to, they're going to investigate 
to, to these reports. What a bunch of nonsense. I mean, they know it's up there. They put it up there. The balloon was spotted at one point above um, uh, Mal- Malmstrom, Mal- Malmstrom, what, what in the world? Malmstrom, M-A-L-M-S-T-R-O-M, Malmstrom Air Force Base which is home to nuclear missile silos, the Associated Press reported. Ryder also reported that it doesn't pose a threat to air traffic or civilians on the ground. Really? I think it's a threat to civilians on the ground. I think if the Chinese are looking at our missile silos and they're flying over the Air Force Base where those missile silos are located, I think that's a threat to civilians on the ground. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is slated to travel to China later this week where he he will meet with senior officials. The Financial Times reported today that Blinken is expected to meet General Secretary Xi Jinping. You know, they ought to just, they ought to shoot it down and then take a piece of it with them on the trip. They could give, like, Blinken a a, a piece of the balloon and say, here, take this back to Xi, will you? Um, Wow. Can they not? Can they not do like Batman in the original Batman movie? You know, when the Joker had all those balloons over Gotham City and they were putting out gas. You know, Batman. They need to call Batman. Put out the bat signal. He came and just jumped on all those things, yanked them, took them up into the atmosphere, released them. Well, uh, I, I th- this is crazy to me. I mean, I if they could have shot it down over Montana then they should have shot it down over Montana. Why would you hesitate? The President of the United States issued an order, said he, he wanted it shot down, and the Pentagon said, no, uh, you really don't want to do that, Mr. President, because there's a lot of, of stuff. It's not just a balloon. There's all kinds of listening equipment. Well, yeah, that's, that's why it's a spy balloon. If it was just a balloon, it'd be, be no big deal. Um, you could just, you know, fire a dart at it or something, but but you you can't do that when it's loaded down with equipment that could kill somebody on the ground. But Gary made a good point. Like, well, when it was over a remote area, I mean, now they think it's floating around over New York. I mean, they're just going to let it float around and till it's done doing whatever it's going to do. Oh no no no! Wait a minute, we've got the cloaking device. We put out our cloaking device so that it can't see any of our sensitive information. I don't, I don't think these guys know what they're talking about. I mean, I really don't. And what's what's even more interesting is they say that this is not the first time that it's not that unusual to have a high-altitude spy balloon floating around over the country. Uh, the Chinese don't put money into stuff like this, and they don't do things that that somehow is not giving them information. If it If it didn't work... They wouldn't do it. And for the United States to suggest that this is no big deal, um, I think it's a big deal. The biggest deal is that they had to find out about it from a passenger on an airplane. You know, as I was reading the Wall Street Journal piece earlier this morning, they talked about the fact that, well, it doesn't really have any radar. It doesn't have any uh, anything that would alert our warning system. Well, uh, we need to work on the warning system because if you can just fly a balloon over the United States anytime you want to, and we have no idea it's up there, uh, could you drop a nuke from would would our early warning system pick up a nuclear device dropped from a balloon? I mean, I I don't know. So I think it would be good to ask a few questions about this. Maybe the Chinese are just wanting to be friends. 
That's why they're sending balloons over. Kind of lighten up the mood a little bit before Anthony Blinken goes over there to talk about serious stuff with Xi Jinping. Um, no. I, th- I think they probably now have even more serious stuff to talk about. All right, uh, a couple of things. One, um, the yesterday down in Columbia, it looks like the heartbeat bill, a revised uh, edition of the heartbeat bill, will be coming to the floor of the Senate on Tuesday. Yesterday, the task was to get it out of committee, and apparently that has happened and that means the Senate will be taking it up on Tuesday. Now, Wednesday's a joint session next week between the House and the Senate, and they're going to very likely elect uh, Judge Gary Hill to be a member of the South Carolina Supreme Court, so uh, there won't be a lot of time to do much else. By the way, next Wednesday is our Baptist barbecue as well. Uh, We'll be setting up the big tent and having our senators and legislators and plus some invited guests come by to enjoy barbecue for lunch um, before they go in to vote, before they go into the joint session, or maybe even after, because usually that doesn't take very long. And so then on Thursday, um, they're hoping to get that bill wrapped up, voted on, and sent over to the House. In the meantime, the House of Representatives is working on 3447, which is a bill sponsored by John McCravey and a host of others in the House, that would ban abortion beginning at conception with fatal fetal anomaly, rape, incest, life of the mother, all the exceptions on there. And it uh, should come to the floor of the House as well on Tuesday and work its way. um, Well, it'll be recommended to the floor out of judiciary on Tuesday morning, and then it'll work its way toward passage in the House. And then we'll have to figure out, can, can we come up with something from the House that can pass the Senate or something from the Senate that can pass the House? Can there be agreement on that? Uh, There's going to have to be a lot of discussion between now and the end of next week or the beginning of the next week before we figure out whether we're going to be able to get a pro-life bill. And I'm going to say this, and a lot of people are not going to like this, but I actually think that getting a right now, we have the political will, I believe, to pass a six-week bill. That's where the political will lies. It's not where my will lies. If if I could wave my hand and get something done, I would get a conception bill done. But a conception bill right now is not going to get through the Senate. It's just a political reality. Um, But if we can pass a six-week bill, send it to the governor, get it signed, it's going to be enjoined by the circuit court. But that means it then goes back to, it'll go to the South Carolina Supreme Court and the decision of the Supreme Court, which was terrible on the heartbeat bill, could be reversed. In other words, essentially, the court would put out opinions and write statements on that would be, in the majority of view, different from the statements that they put out for the original heartbeat bill. And it's important to get that on the record because of precedent. I mean, the Supreme Court, they're basically saying that the right to privacy in the South Carolina Constitution um, trumps a lot of things. Now, Kay Hearn went way out of her way to say at the beginning of her explanation of why the right to privacy trumped the right to life. She said, we acknowledge that the state has the right in certain circumstances to 
uh, if, if their interest can be greater than a person's right to privacy, and they acknowledge that. That's not enough when you're talking about a Supreme Court precedent, it, 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 because that's very vague. The best thing that could happen to me is that we get another Supreme Court decision that is very clear that the right to privacy is not a right that supersedes life or many other things. In fact, the, the, a, a decision that would talk about the right to privacy in the South Carolina Constitution within the context in which it was written, which was concern over illegal search and seizure, illegal wiretaps and warrants, warrantless search and seizure and, and wiretaps, I should say. And so, you know, to, to get that into the legal precedent record from the Supreme Court in South Carolina would be important. Um, again, South Carolina Baptist Convention has passed resolution after resolution, and the one, the latest one is the strongest one, asking for legislation that would ban abortion beginning at conception. And we've got that bill in the House, and it's likely going to pass the House, but it can't, it's, there's, it's just not going to pass the Senate. I wish that it would, I, I, but there are Republican senators over there that will not vote for it. So we, you know, we can actually have nothing until the election in 2020, 2024 and hope that some senators lose their seats and we get some pro-life senators in there that would be willing to go with conception, but don't know whether we're going to get that or not. You know, I it 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 could be that we go two years. We we well we know this without any bill, we've got to go from here to the election in 2024, and then into 2025 with 20 week abortion. I mean. We're at 20 weeks, you understand. So if we can cut that back to six weeks and we have the political will to get that done when we don't have the political will to get a, a conception bill through, it just, to me, makes sense. We do what we can. We protect as much life as we can, and we keep moving forward. Doesn't mean that we don't ever come back with another bill. Doesn't mean that we don't immediately start working if we pass the heartbeat bill toward conception get that bill over to the senate um you know keep it rolling put pressure but there the the current political environment in the senate is not going to pass a conception bill so anyway um i'll keep you up to date next week we'll um you know there'll be a lot more about this to talk about because the bills are actually going to be on the floor for debate and for the possibility of amendment. And again, be praying about next Wednesday because seriously, that that is a big deal. Uh, the Supreme the putting Gary Hill on as a Supreme Court justice and just waiting to see if his philosophy is conservative enough to make a difference on the court. And we're not talking about activist conservative philosophy. I'm talking about a conservative philosophy that reads the text of the Constitution in South Carolina and interprets it within its context. Because, again, Article 1, Section 10, added in 1970, is clearly 
was clearly put into the Constitution of South Carolina to try to push back against government overreach, particularly the Justice Department, specifically J. Edgar Hoover's Justice Department, that or FBI, rather, that was, at the time, violating a lot of people's privacy rights in order to gather information. Okay, if you haven't heard the news that we announced yesterday, um, we're closing up shop here at uh, His Radio Talk come March 31st. Uh, Gary's retiring after uh, a lustrous career in radio broadcasting. So <laughs> he's, in, and I, I'm, I'm teasing him a little bit, but uh, certainly he's had an amazing career and accomplished a lot of things. Been here at North, at, uh, <laughs> at North Greenville. He's been here at uh, his radio for um, a long, long time. And uh, so when he retires March 31st, his radio talk is going to cease to exist. 91.9 and 89.7 still going to be around, but it will be some type of uh, different format. Don't know what that's going to be yet. We'll tell you as soon as we are at liberty to tell you. But the talk format will be gone, which means this show is not going to exist in its current form. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to go away. I'm I'm working. I've got meetings scheduled today with folks that are going to help me transition over to a web-based show that will be a podcast, and but also be available at a certain time every day. I've, I've decided that it's important that we stay, you know, where you can get up in the morning, you can watch it live on Facebook, you can, um, maybe we might have a YouTube channel added on, um, you can, you know, listen to it um, by streaming, off of the website, and then later you can download the podcast. Now, probably what's going to happen, haven't made all these decisions final yet, but probably the show's going to be a little bit shorter. I'm thinking somewhere in the neighborhood of um, 45 to 50 minutes, sort of the normal length of a podcast. And so we may do three stories, you know, maybe 15 minutes each, and then you've got the intro and the, all of that. So um, we'll see. But it, the, the, the bottom line is we're still going to have a podcast available, um, and we'll be streaming in some form at a regular time so that if you want to get it in real time, you can, you can do that. But if you get going on a good rant, you know, yeah. the 45 yeah, minutes, you know, be. you're at 48 minutes, look. I got a rant going here. I'm going to keep going. Well, yeah, that's I the, like to hear that. That's thing. kind of the beauty of it, too. I mean, you're not, you know, each show doesn't have to be the same length. It doesn't have to fit any kind of template. Hmm. Um, you know, um, my rants are becoming rarer these days. I'm, I'm trying to communicate uh, post rant, but still, I mean, occasionally I get a little fired up. So we'll. You know, we're going to keep the show going, and, and we'll see if there's interest in it. I mean, look, I'm not one of these guys who's sitting here with an ego thinking that I've got this huge audience out there. I know better than that. I mean, we, you know, this is a niche market. It's I'm talking about issues, and I'm trying to do it from a Christian worldview perspective, and I'm not going to sensationalize. I'm not going to use profanity. I'm not going to, you know, and I'm, I'm going to try to give you – the truth of what's going on and, and things that I feel like you need to know that makes you a better citizen, makes you 
in some cases, maybe a more mature believer, because we do occasionally talk about issues here that relate to theology and our understanding of our relationship with God. So that's that's my goal, and, and if there's interest in that, if people want to hear it, then, um, you know, so be it. We'll, we'll find a way to keep it going, um, you know, and, and if not, I got other stuff I can do in the morning. But uh, anyway, if you want to get in touch with us right now, 888-660-9535. Yesterday, we talked about the Hamilton 68 Project. And just by way of review, let me just kind of bring you back up to speed, short version. Hamilton 68 was a dashboard designed to be used by reporters and academics to measure Russian disinformation. And so they they set this up so that if a reporter, let's say you're sitting in the newsroom, you're writing a story about Russian disinformation, and you want to check out a source or you want to check something, you should be able to go to Hamilton 68, and you can find all this information and all these people that are being monitored that are supposed to be responsible for Russian disinformation. The problem is that the, the Twitter files – reverse-engineered Hamilton's list all the way back in 2017 because they became suspicious that so many reports were appearing that said something about the Hamilton files or Hamilton 68. They, it, 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 there was this explosion, this proliferation of news stories that were linked to that particular website, and so they ordered a forensic analysis. And what they discovered was startling. Twitter execs were shocked at the information that they found. The accounts Hamilton 68 claimed were linked to Russian influence activities online were just regular people, largely in the U.S., Canada, and Britain, grasping right away that Twitter might be implicated in a moral outrage. They wrote that these account holders need to know that they've been unilaterally labeled Russian stooges without evidence or recourse. So it was as as we said it was a scam. It was it was never a vetted dashboard with factual information linked to it. It was just a lot of speculation and stuff that people were putting up there. Well, now today Jeff Gerth, who you need to know who he is. Uh, Jeff Gerth is a, one of the He's, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner. He spent decades at the New York Times, and he taught investigative journalism at Princeton. And he's done an in-depth study and investigation naming sources, which Gerth says is important for legitimizing a news story. Um, he names his sources, and he's got a four-part story, which, honestly, it's a, it's a book. It, it could be easily turned into a book. It's it, Right now it's kind of a small book, probably about 100 pages, but it's four separate stories writing about media coverage of Donald Trump. Now, this is being published in the Columbia Journalism Review. And in case you're wondering, that's not the conservative Columbia Journalism Review. This is They tend to be progressive. He did 18 months of investigations, and the report found serious flaws in the reporting that earned the Washington Post and the New York Times Pulitzer Prizes. 
So I'm going to give you some bullet points. Now, I haven't read this because I just found out about it late yesterday, and it's going to take a while to walk through all this information because, like I said, it's it's 100 pages probably plus. But it is. It, I'm going to read it because this the, one of the most important things to come out of the Trump era is the exposure of the legacy media as having their thumb on the scale for Democrats to the point that they don't even fact check anymore. I mean, it's one thing to be biased. Walter Cronkite was biased. Wally, I mean, all these, um, you know, supposed network anchors that were paragons of unbiased reporting, they, they all leaned to the left. But it was a slight lean. What we've got now is, you know, just completely sold out to progressive thinking. That's what the media has become. And they're, they're not even checking sources anymore. They have, and as I've said many times on this program, they have a narrative. And if the facts don't fit the narrative, the facts have to be warped. They've got to be shaped or they've got to be ignored. And so the narrative rules once we decide, once the media decides that Donald Trump has got to be a Russian stooge, then they ignore stories that suggest that that's not true, and they amplify stories without checking sources that says that it is true. Now, I've, I've, we've suspected that, and I mean, we've, we've pretty much known it, but now what Jeff Gerth has done is an in-depth report to document it so that you don't when you say that you've got something solid that came from true investigative reporting to back it up so here are the kind of the bullet points um the washington post and the new york times didn't follow their own rules when using anonymous sources and one of the ways that they didn't do that consider this over a thousand times in stories that they wrote about Donald Trump and about his campaign and about Russia collusion and about everything else that's negative about Trump, over a thousand times in their coverage, the Times attributed information to, quote, a person familiar with. You know, according to a person familiar with the story, according to a person familiar with the situation. According to a source at the FBI who would not be named because they weren't authorized to hand out information. I mean, all you, you've all read those statements, something similar. And for the most part, in these stories revolving around Donald Trump, that's the kind of language that you heard from the New York Post and the Washington Times, uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post. These are th this is not the way that journalism is supposed to work, and it's certainly not the way that Pulitzer Prizes should be handed out. They're supposed to be handed out for integrity in the investigation. In other words, the, the, the veracity of the story that they're writing has been proven, and it's a bombshell story, and it's something that the public wouldn't have known had not the New York Times and the Washington Post revealed it. Well, it turns out that a lot of that was manufactured and poorly source-checked. They ignored evidence, the Times and the Post, that should have cast doubt on their stories. For example, in early 2018, the Times ignored an FBI investigative report written by their lead investigator who said that the FBI didn't find any serious evidence that Trump had Russia ties. Now, I remember talking about that. 
back in 2018. We, we talked about that on the show because the FBI put out this report and it was pretty much ignored by the legacy media because it didn't fit the narrative. But it was filled with factual, investigative, backed up information that said Donald Trump, they, they looked at it in detail and said, you know what? Donald Trump doesn't have demonstrable ties that are concerning to the FBI any kind of connections to Russia. Girth says that the Times relied on selective leaks coming from Congress when it should have been obvious that those leaks were politically motivated and short on facts. Well, of course, it, I guarantee you, leaks from Congress, Adam Schiff, others that were high profile, that were constantly, you know, camped out at MSNBC, that had a, a tent pitched in the lobby of CNN. They were there all the time, and they were putting out information constantly. You know, Adam Schiff over and over again said, we've got this bombshell information, Trump's going down, just wait till we turn the next page. And every time we turned a page on the Trump story, it was, a, it was nothing. There was nothing there. It was all written in disappearing ink, apparently. Because by the time we got to see anything, there was nothing to see. And this is where the Times and the, uh, the Post were getting their stories, not from sources that they could talk about. Um, Girth reported that when special counsel Robert Mueller announced that he was not going to recommend action against Trump after the 10-month investigation, panic broke out in the New York Times newsroom because they knew that decision would cast a negative light on their false reporting. FBI report detailing numerous inaccuracies in a Times story was released. And, and the title of the Times, New York Times story, Trump campaign aides had repeated contact with Russian intelligence. Girth said that the FBI categorically refuted the lead and the headline to that story. In other words, they, the, the FBI said, where did you get this nonsense? When, when the Times printed that story, because the FBI had already determined that there were no demonstrable ties between Trump and his aides and Russia. So, you know, how do you come out with a story like that and then be chastised by the FBI and then win a Pulitzer Prize? I guess, what, I guess the Pulitzer Prize is being handed out for lying these days. Matt Teeby, who is one of the reporters who reported extensively on the amount of government influence over Twitter, told Megan Basham at Daily Wire that the whole thrust of Jeff's piece is that it has a lot to do with legacy media sources being willing to accept things on, on, the, on its face from, from unnamed sources, particularly from the intelligence world. I think Jeff did the right thing. This is a quote from Taibbi. I think Jeff did the right thing by putting the entirety of that story on the record. He's got nearly everyone giving him information under their own names. It's a kind of a message he's sending that this is how you do it. Now, how's the New York Times and Washington Post responding to this? They basically put out statements and said the Pulitzer Prizes that they won speak for themselves. They won't do anything to provide additional information. Uh, all right, I thought we'd stay on the theme of, of basically being lied to as the American people, which I, it's not a theme I enjoy. I mean, I, I don't like sitting here telling you 
that there's a bunch of people not telling you the truth, the things they're telling you are not true, and the things they're not telling you are true, but they're just not telling you. And that can be frustrating. But we need to know it because the the only path that gets us out of the the mess that we're in is the path of the truth. You you it it almost reminds me of um you know Men in Black 3. I don't know if you've seen that, but that that was my favorite of the 3. And I'm I'm in the minority. Most people like the original best. And uh I don't know anybody that thought the second one was the best, but actually the way that it wrapped up I thought was fascinating. So there's a scene in that movie where you've got um you know you you've got the men in black guys and then you've got this alien who can see the future and is actually uh, sort of not just seeing the future but is a, a, is able to move back and forth in time and so they're at in Florida you know they're about to the rocket's about to be launched to the moon and they need to get the arcnet which is going to protect the earth from invasion and destruction. They've got to get it up on top of the rocket before it lifts off. And so they're, you know, they've used these flying jetpacks, because this is science fiction, it's men in black. They've used these flying jetpacks to get to um, a position where they could try to get up on the rocket, and they get confronted by the authorities. And they decide, well, we're going to use our, you know, the denuralizer, which will cause these people to forget that we were ever, ever here. And the, the multidimensional guy that's with them says, no, 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 the only path here that gets to a, a, a good conclusion is the truth. And so, you know, Will Smith steps up his character and just says, look, we're from the future. We're uh, men and black we're an agency that investigates extraterrestrial life on earth and we're being threatened right now um by the boglodites and we we've got to put this arc net on top of the rocket sea so that the earth will be protected and the officials look at each other and throw them all three down on the ground on their face you know and it's but but it's interesting what what interests me about that is the statement that the only way that we get to the conclusion that we want is the path of the truth. You've got to tell the truth. And I think that's where we are as a country. Without people being willing to tell the truth, without people being willing to expose that we're not being told the truth, I think we're never going to get out of the mess that we find ourselves in. So, okay, top January 6th investigator. This is according to Ryan Saavedra over at Daily Wire. FBI, other federal agencies could have stopped the riot if they did their jobs. What riot? January 6th. Now, this is information that was available to the January 6th committee, which was never the January 6th committee. It was the let's indict Trump and let's make Republicans look bad in front of the midterm elections committee. And they they failed in the first part, they, at least so far been no indictment of Trump, and there was really nothing revealed from the January 6th committee that would suggest criminal activity. So, you know, but 
some of the stuff that they did discover that would have been helpful had we been privy to it, they just buried because it didn't fit the narrative of, of, of embarrassing Trump or making Republicans look bad. And if it didn't fit that narrative, they didn't let that information out. So here's just a bullet, proof, a bullet point list of things that the committee, the, the lead investigator in the January 6th committee investigation came out and said, these are things that happened that had they not happened, then we probably wouldn't have had a January 6th. It had just been another day on the calendar. Capitol Police failed to deploy enough force to defend the building, but the FBI and DHS, Department of Homeland Security, the federal agencies charged with collecting intelligence about domestic extremists, didn't do enough to sound the alarm about the threat. So in other words, DHS and the FBI had enough information from social media and from chatter and from things that they were picking up to say, look, it looks like there's there might be an organized effort here by a small group that could expand into a larger group if they get something started. They had information to suggest that that could happen. They really didn't share that with the Capitol Police. I mean, we can, we can begin by saying the Capitol Police weren't prepared, but part of the reason they weren't prepared is they didn't have the information they needed. Second point, the FBI and DHS were too cautious about exploiting so-called open-source intelligence gleaned from social media out of misplaced concern about free speech violations. Look, I, I, I want our freedom of speech to be protected, but... what? People who are talking about storming the Capitol or overthrowing the government or stopping the electoral vote count, that's not freedom of speech. That's a freedom of speech issue. That is expressing a desire to undermine the federal government. And, and that has to be investigated, but they weren't doing it. How much time have we got? I think we're running close. Got a minute. The FBI and DHS made a crucial error by not publishing a joint intelligence bulletin ahead of the threats that were about the threats that they were seeing, which might have prompted a more robust defense of the Capitol. And finally, there was confusion about which federal agency was in charge hampering this response once the Capitol was breached. When this thing started, instead of having an immediate response, you had a bunch of bureaucrats running around trying to figure out who's supposed to respond. And so it ended up being the mess that it was. But where has this information been? Why haven't we been given this information? Because it doesn't fit the narrative, which was to get Trump and embarrass Republicans.